welcome science and sci-fi geeks. This is Interface to Face, the podcast that brings you interviews with some really cool people. I'm Chuck Tomasi, and joining me in just a moment is my co-host, Craig Stepp. We are very excited to have with us today Dr. Micho Kaku making a return visit. We last spoke with him on his book, Physics of the Impossible, about three years ago, and now he's got a new book called Physics of the Future. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce once again, Dr. Micho Kaku. Welcome, Dr. Kaku, and thank you for your time. Well, glad to be on. Hey, it's it's an absolute honor to talk with you again. You've become somewhat of a rock star in the geek community. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got a new book out called Physics of the Future. Can you give the listener an overview of what Physics of the Future is all about? Well, I've interviewed over 300 of the world's top scientists now, and these are the scientists who are inventing the future in their laboratory. Uh, they're not science fiction writers, they're not sociologists, they're not historians. I have nothing against those professions, but it is scientists who are pushing the boundaries of our knowledge, and I had a chance to write a book about the next 100 years. Now, you may say to yourself, ha, who can possibly predict 100 years in the future? But remember that Jules Verne predicted mm-hmm. the moon flight uh, to, to the moon, Within 10% accuracy, a uh, hundred years before the Apollo mission. And he also wrote a novel called Paris in the 20th Century. He wrote that in 1863, and he predicted Paris in 1960. Believe it or not, in a period where people were dirt farmers and uh, long distance communication was basically yelling your, your, uh, your voice box off, uh, he predicted glass skyscrapers, <clears throat> fax machines something like the Internet, gas-fired automobiles. So I said to myself, well, if he could do it, I should try too. The interesting thing about the book is that it's based on what we know today and what you see going on, like, for example, the uh, flexible displays with the OLEDs. What do you base your predictions on? Well, I'm a physicist, and as a consequence, first of all, all the predictions have to be consistent with the laws of physics. Second of all, All the things that I mentioned in the book, I have hundreds of predictions in the book, are based on prototypes that exist today. For example, uh, if you talk about the Internet of the next 10, 15 years, more than likely it's going to be inside your contact lens. So you simply blink and you immediately go online. And if you see people's faces, your contact lens will identify who they are, print their biography in your contact lens, and if they speak Chinese to you, Subtitles will emerge below their face. And the first people to buy these contact lenses in their, uh, the Internet in their contact lens will be college students studying for final examinations. <laughs> uh, they will blink and download all the final examination answers. It reminds me of the TV show Chuck. I don't know if you watched that one where he's been uh, programmed with the Intersect. He's got a database full of information. But instead of carrying it around with you, you'd have kind of wireless, instant access to all this information. That's uh, Sign me up for that. As soon as they come out, I want one. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, that's in the next 10, 15 years. Uh, we'll have driverless cars. Cars will drive themselves. Uh, Google is already putting millions of dollars to perfect this commercially within about eight years' time. And now talking mid-century, talking now about uh, the year, like, 2050, uh, we'll be communicating with our computers telepathically. Uh, we already have uh, helmets that we can put on our head that pick up radio signals from the brain. Computers can now decipher more or less the structure of our th- thoughts and carry out our wishes. 
And so prototypes of this already exist. Uh, we can hook up stroke victims who are totally paralyzed to a laptop computer. And even though they are basically vegetables, they can now surf the web, uh, answer email, write email, do crossword puzzles, play video games. They can do anything you can do on the computer, except they are paralyzed. Uh, I also, you kind of touch on a, a fact there. I find it fascinating that you not only talk about the technology, but also get into the physiological and ethical implications of such changes, like immortality or, or cybernetic implants. Not only could we do it and when we could do it, but should we do it? Right. I think there's also an ethical dimension. First of all, if you look at our grandparents and great-grandparents of 1900, uh, they were dirt farmers. Uh, back then, there was no such thing as modern medicine. Uh, if you were to look at the way they lived back then and uh, ask them, how would they view us today? How would our ancestors of 1900 view us? They would view us as sorcerers and wizards with our s- satellites and rockets <laughs> and our GPS, right, computers. Now, if we were to meet our grandkids and our grandkids of the year 2100, how would we view them? We would view them as the gods of mythology. Zeus, for example, could simply mentally think of something and it would come to be. There are perks being a god, because look at Venus. She had a perfect body Mm -hmm. and also timeless body. Also, Apollo, how did he get around? He went around in uh, chariots that went into the sky. We'll have flying cars, believe it or not, uh, before 2100. And look at Pegasus, animals that don't even exist in our world today we will have. We will have zoos of extinct animals, for example. And so that's going to be the world of 2100. However, if you read Greek mythology, you realize that the gods were quite foolish. Uh, they spent most of their time uh, wasting it, uh, seducing each other and making mischief. <laughs> and so we have to have the wisdom of Solomon to go with this uh, godlike power. But I'm firmly, I'm firmly convinced that when, if we reach the year 2100 and we were to view them today, we would view them just like the gods of mythology. Or to paraphrase Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from divinity. I was just going to say that. I was hoping you quote that. Thank you very much. I love that phrase. Uh-huh. You're on the right track because they're trying to, you know, clone things like the woolly mammoth or, you know, whatever kind of dinosaurs like Jurassic Park. Yeah, we can already uh, dream about bringing back the Neanderthal man. This is well within our capability today. Uh, one professor estimates what it costs about $30 million to bring back the Neanderthal. Uh, scientists have already extracted DNA from six Neanderthal skeletons assembled them, and got a complete composite of the DNA of a Neanderthal. And uh, there's already talk about, at some point or other, uh, inserting this DNA into a cell and implanting the cell either into a female chimpanzee or maybe even a volunteer and uh, giving birth to a Neanderthal. But then that raises ethical questions, as you mentioned, right? Uh, the professor who proposed this was at Harvard University, and so one, one, one critic said, where are you going to put this baby Neanderthal, at Harvard or in a zoo? <laughs> yeah, right. You mentioned immortality, right? Yeah. Um, this is something that, of course, kings and queens and emperors dreamed about and never attained. However, we are now teasing apart the genes that control the aging process. Uh, we are, for example, 98.5% identical to the chimpanzee, genetically speaking, and yet 
we live twice as long as the chimpanzee. So among a handful of genes, which we are now sequencing, a handful of genes which separate us from the chimpanzee are the genes which doubled our lifespan. And so in the future, when all of us have a CD-ROM with all our genes on it, it'll cost about 100 bucks, uh, we'll take the genome of millions of old people, subtract it against the genome of millions of young people, and there are the genes that control aging. So we will isolate them. We've already found about 60, looking at the genes of old people, subtracting them from the genes of young people to find out where aging is concentrated. And so I, I firmly believe that we will close in on the genetics of aging uh, within a few decades. I just find that amazing when you think about the vast amounts of data and what you can learn uh, uh, tracing your ancestors, genetic defects that you could say, hey, am I susceptible to something like Alzheimer's or something, just by having this data at your fingertips. Right. It's an owner's manual for your body. Uh, you have owner's manuals for your VCR, your TV set, stereo, everything, right? Except you. You do not have an <laughs> owner's manual. And what are you going to do with this owner's manual? One thing you will do is you will grow organs as they wear out. Already from your own cells, not somebody else's cells, but from your own cells, we can grow cartilage, noses, ears, skin, bone, blood vessels, heart valves, the first bladder was grown four years ago. The first windpipe was grown last year. And within five years' time, we will grow the first liver. So for all you alcoholics out there, take heart. Uh, even if your liver gives out, we'll probably be able to grow one for you within about five or so years. Hmm. Well, don't look at me, Chuck. <laughs> so this is going to give us a human body shop. Uh, as organs wear out, we'll be able to grow new ones. Now, obviously, some organs are a little more complex, like the kidney and the brain, than, yeah. than growing a, a sort of unified liver, if you will. Yeah, livers are rather simple. Pancreas, livers, uh, they only consist of several different kinds of cells, while a full kidney or a heart or a brain, of course, will be much, much more complicated. That's further down the line. Since we're talking about the body, and I imagine that along with some of the parts growing, I imagine that computers are going to be a large part of what we can do, like body modifications and stuff like that. Where do you see some of that going? Well, of course, uh, a lot of people ask the question, if you now go to uh, many decades after that, uh, what happens when the robots get so smart, uh, they decide to take over? And they put us in zoos, they throw peanuts at us, and make us dance behind bars. <laughs> um, that's something that we have to consider. Uh, there are three basic attitudes that uh, scientists can take toward the time when robots become so smart, they begin to rival our intelligence. Uh, one group of scientists that I interviewed say that we should let it happen. That is, we should let the robots take over, and that's because they are our children, and they are our rightful evolutionary heirs. Evolution is survival of the fittest, and if we create robots that are fitter than us, then let them take over. That's one group of scientists that I interviewed. Another group of scientists that I interviewed say, over my dead body, will, will the machines take over? And, and that might be the case. We're going to put chips in their brain to shut them off if they get murderous. And then we're going to talk to Harrison Ford and get an army of robot fighters to, to fight down deviant robots uh, that want to take over. 
But then there's the third group that you allude to, a third group of people who say that maybe we should merge with our creations and take the best of both worlds. You know, why, why should we fight this when it could be inevitable? And why, why not wake up one day <clears throat> with an immortal body, a body that's perfect, a body that's handsome, super strong, super intelligent? Uh, why not wake up as a god one day uh, with a perfect body and live forever? Why not merge with our creations? Uh, that's the third point of view that I encountered when interviewing these people. And, of course, that means enhancement. That means mechanical and genetic enhancement to keep up with our robot creations. Well, you mentioned the, the robot overlords taking over, and uh, there's there's this Skynet approach where, where one day the robots are going to wake up and be sentient and conscious and self-aware. Now, you, you allude in the book that there it's not just a light switch. Evolution didn't just one day say, hey— you know, look in the mirror. That's you. There's different stages. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I have a different point of view than others who believe that one day Skynet will wake up. Um, my point of view is that consciousness is continuous, that even a lowly thermostat has some form of consciousness. Uh, even a thermostat is aware of its environment and adjusts itself as a consequence. So I would put that at like the lowest state of consciousness would be a uh, thermostat, and that's the question of self-awareness and awareness of your environment. Bugs, I would put a little bit higher, uh, bugs can actually search for food and search for mates, as well as avoid danger. That's a lot more sophisticated than, than a thermostat. Mm -hmm. But then if you start to go up the evolutionary scale, you realize that at a certain point, animals begin to be totally self-aware, aware of who they are, uh, if they look at themselves in a mirror, they don't attack themselves. They realize that that person, in the, that, that animal in the mirror is really them themselves. And so you have not just an awareness of the environment, but an awareness of self. And then I would put the third component of consciousness, in addition to awareness of the environment, awareness of yourself, the third component of consciousness, I would say, is simulating the future. Animals, to the best of our knowledge, do not understand the concept of tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't mean anything to them, to the best of our knowledge. Uh, they plan maybe a few minutes, a few hours into the future. Uh, animals can hunt. Animals can camouflage. So they do see into the future a little bit. But the concept of tomorrow, as far as we can tell, is non-existent in the animal kingdom. We, on the other hand, constantly simulate the future. We constantly say to ourselves, what do I do if I rob a bank? What, do I, what happens if I flunk this exam? We constantly run, run artificial simulations of the future. And that, to me, is the highest form of intelligence when we begin to understand reality and then simulate it, run simulations of reality into the future in our brain. So in the future, if we meet aliens from out of space, if this theory is correct, they would be able to simulate the future much better than us. They would have a much better grasp of the laws of physics, laws of chemistry and biology, so they would be able to simulate much farther and deeper into the future to predict future outcomes that we can only dimly, are dimly aware of because of our limited intelligence. All right, you touched on outer space. You have to mention, I think it's called the singularity, where, where mm -hmm. we eventually, uh, the robots, the machines consume all the resources on Earth and then have to move out into space. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, there are different attitudes. Um, there was a conference in Asilomar uh, about a year and a half ago. All the top artificial intelligence people at the conference. The New York Times was there, and they interviewed a lot of people as to when the singularity will take place. Uh, the singularity is, first, when machines become smarter than us. Second, when they start to have children who are smarter than them. And they have to, then they start to have grandkids that are smarter than their grandparents. And pretty soon it exponentially starts to shoot into space until they basically take over the solar system, uh, salvage planets to feed their hungry uh, machines, and then they take over the galaxy, and then eventually they take over the universe, turning the universe into a gigantic computer. Well, when these scientists were asked by the New York Times, when might the singularity take place? Some people said as early as 20 years, other people say, well, no earlier than a thousand years. So even within the AI community, there's a wide spectrum of beliefs as to when this may happen. I personally think if it happens at all, it's going to be pushed toward the end of the century, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because Moore's Law is going to collapse. Moore's Law says the computer power doubles every 18 months. We think it's our birthright to have computers that are twice as powerful every Christmas than the previous uh, Christmas, right? Absolutely, yeah. That. That's why we upgrade. That's why we buy the latest gadgets, knowing that it's better than last year's gadgets. But in 10 years or so, it's going to break down. How come? By around 2020, Moore's Law will collapse, and with it, a huge chunk of the economy could collapse. Uh, Silicon Valley could turn into a rust belt, and it means that we physicists are desperately trying to find a replacement for silicon. But we haven't yet. So the post-silicon era is a huge question mark, and I think it means that Moore's Law is going to slow down. And for, the, for those people who, who think that Moore's Law is going to continue forever, and therefore by 2050 the robots will be way smarter than us, you have to realize that we physicists don't know how to build robots that smart <clears throat> uh, because we don't know what will replace silicon. We're looking at quantum computers, quantum dot computers, protein computers, optical computers, molecular computers, but so far, none of them are ready for prime time. So the bad news is that Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. The good news, however, is that maybe the robots won't take over so soon. If they don't take over, <laughs> how do you see robots helping us or uh, assisting us with certain things? I know we have some today, like, you know, bomb and uh, rescue uh, robots and that Robot. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, robot vacuum our floors. Yeah, here's how I see it. Right now, our most advanced robots have the intelligence of a cockroach, a stupid cockroach, a <laughs> lobotomized, dim-witted, stupid cockroach. Yeah, that would be <laughs> you, Chuck. Yeah, our most advanced computers can barely walk across the room. They can barely recognize simple objects in front of them. You cannot talk to them. You cannot joke with them. Um, Asimo in Japan is one of the most intelligent robots that we've ever built. I had a chance on several occasions to film sequences with Asimo, and it took like three hours to film these sequences because Asimo is basically a tape recorder, a very sophisticated tape recorder that walks and talks like a human being, but is really an insect in terms of its intelligence. Now, I would assume that in a few more decades, we'll have robots as smart as a mouse or a rabbit, able to quite successfully navigate the environment and understand primitive objects and things like that. And then maybe in a few decades after that, as smart as a dog or a cat, 
a dog or a cat can fetch, they can bond with humans, and maybe by the end of the century, uh, robots are smart as a monkey. Monkeys can plan. They actually can see ahead, you know, several hours uh, into the future. And so maybe we'll have robots as smart as a monkey by the end of the century. Now, to me, this means that we're going to have plenty of time to deal with robots as they become more human-like, and we'll have plenty of time to put chips in their brain if they start to get out of hand. And it's not going to be one sudden instant when they wake up and they say, oh, I'm, I'm intelligent, I'm smarter than my master, let me take over. It's not going to happen like that at all. I think it's going to be a much more gradual, long, protracted process as we create machines gradually as smart as us. Well, you, you talk about machines being smarter than their predecessors, machines being smarter than us, and, and you kind of hit on a topic in the book. What exactly is smart? Uh, well, that's something that uh, scientists have never quite defined yet. Uh, also, consciousness, uh, there's no one uniform definition of consciousness. And so we're in a very weird situation where no two scientists can agree on even a definition of consciousness or a definition of smart. I would say, as I mentioned, that consciousness consists of three parts. One is self-awareness, one is awareness of the environment, and two is being able to simulate the future. Those, I think, are the three components of consciousness. Because if you think about it, when you daydream or you sit in a chair all by yourself, you're all alone, what are you thinking about? Well, you're thinking about your environment, you're thinking about who you are, and you're thinking about, you. what am I going to do? That's, that's mm-hmm. the bulk of what you think about. And so I think these are the basic components of consciousness. And if you then compare that with a robot, you begin to realize how primitive robots are. Like, for example, uh, Watson was the IBM computer that beat two people on Jeopardy. It was in all the newspapers, and people thought, oh, my God, robots are so smart now, they've even beat humans on Jeopardy. But, you know, Watson is so stupid (laughs) that it didn't even know it won. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you couldn't congratulate Watson because Watson had no awareness of the fact that it just beat two humans on Jeopardy. We forget that robots are adding machines. They're very sophisticated adding machines. They add a million times faster than us. So we have the illusion that they're somehow alive, even though they are, in, in essence, just adding machines. We are very sophisticated adding machines, but we add, you know, uh, in, in a way that robots do not. Robots are computers, but our brain is not a computer. Uh, many people are astonished when I tell them this, but our brain has no software. It has no programming. It has no Pentium chip. It has no CPU, has no subroutines, and no windows. So if our brain has none of these things, then it cannot be a computer. So what is our brain? Our brain is a learning machine. It rewires itself after learning every task. So that's why we've been in a wild goose chase for the past 50 years trying to simulate uh, intelligence with a computer when, in fact, our brain is really not a computer. Our brain is a mass of neurons that rewires itself every time it learns something. It's a learning machine. Very different from a, a Turing machine or a digital computer. Since you're talking about the way we learn and everything, uh, there was um, uh, the boy Jacob Barnett, the one that's like the prodigy that's been floating around on the internet lately where he's doing equations and he was finished college already and he's working on improving on Einstein's theories. I was curious what you thought about that because you know he had 
with a touch of Asperger's or something, and it affected the way he thinks. Well, there is a theory about Isaac Newton, who is perhaps the greatest scientist who ever lived, that he suffered from Asperger's syndrome, which is a mild form of autism. Uh, these people tend to be very strange in the sense that they don't they lack social skills. Uh, you would definitely not want to invite one of them for dinner. Uh, they're not going to be the life of the party. You cannot make small talk with them. And they don't even make eye contact that well with you. Um, I interviewed one of them, actually, for my radio show. And uh, he has the world's record for memorizing pi. Uh, he memorized pi to 10,000 digits. It took him several days to recite the number. And they, you know, scientists tape recorded it, and he got all the numbers right out to 10,000 decimal places. So I asked him how he did it. How do you memorize pi out to 10,000 decimal places? And a sequence of numbers that took three days to recite. And he said, well, he had a mental image of a certain color or a certain picture associated with each number. Well, I said to myself, well, gee, I can also simulate numbers with colors and images, mm -hmm. but I can't do that to 10,000 decimal places. No, right? no. So uh, I began to realize that, uh, you know, the architecture of the brain is much more sophisticated than we thought, but the brain does have the capability of an enormous amount of computational power, but most of it is, um, most of it, evolution has, has decided that it's not that useful for us. Um, for example, uh, some people who have this kind of photographic memory tend to be a little bit paralyzed. Uh, mice, for example, we have found the smart mouse gene. Uh, this is a gene that makes mice navigate mazes much better. They have much better memory than the average mouse. But they tend to be very timid in, in the sense that they remember all the time that they've been hurt. They remember all the time they've made a mistake. And therefore, they tend to be a little bit timid. So social skills and interacting with the environment uh, that's their weak spot. Now, if you look at the history of science, uh, Newton probably wasn't the only one with Asperger's. Uh, the greatest, one of the greatest physicists of modern times was Paul Dirac. He was the one who uh, imagined that there's something called antimatter, which of course actually does exist. He wrote down the relativistic theory of the electron, and he uh, was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And there's also a field medalist in mathematics uh, who has Asperger's syndrome. But Einstein did not. Einstein, if anything, was the life of the party. He, he was somebody you would want to invite at a dinner party, and he definitely did not have Asperger's. So Asperger's syndrome, I think, is useful in the sense you, you have this photographic memory, and you can re retrieve all sorts of bits of information, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be a great genius. Um, for example, at CERN, Switzerland, um, I once had lunch with a physicist there, and he told me that in, um, in Switzerland, years, decades ago, when computers were quite primitive, they used to hire uh, a person who had this photographic memory to multiply fantastic numbers together. And uh, they would check it against a computer, and they would actually employ him. They actually paid him to multiply these gigantic numbers together uh, because computers were not that advanced way back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And so there are people like this, but most of them, unfortunately, wind up in circuses. Uh, most of them wind up marginal, uh, with marginal um, skills in the workplace. So the history of people with Asperger's syndrome is not very pleasant. Like I said, in the past, a lot of them wound up in circuses. Hmm. Oh, one final question. What are some of the risks 
we face of not reaching your objectives or predictions as described in the book? Well, I think we're headed towards something called a type one civilization. And I think no matter what, unless we blow ourselves up or commit collective suicide, I think we will attain a type one status. A type one civilization is planetary. They, they control all planetary forms of energy, all energy that falls on them from the sun. They would, for example, be able to control earthquakes, volcanoes, and the weather. Type two would be stellar. They control the output of an entire star. For example, Star Trek would be, the Federation of Planets would be an example of a <clears throat> type two civilization. And then there's type three, which is galactic like the Empire of Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. or the Borg of Star Trek. They would be a galactic civilization. And on this scale, we are type zero. Uh, we, are, we get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. But we are about 100 years away from becoming type one. So I think unless we commit collective suicide, we will probably hit type one by 2100. <clears throat> The Internet, for example, is the beginning of a Type 1 telephone system. So we're privileged to be alive to see the beginning of a Type 1 technology. The European Union is the beginning of a Type 1 economy. Um, rock and roll is the beginning of a Type 1 culture, youth culture. Uh, the Olympics and soccer is the beginning of a Type 1 sports. So, and English is probably the beginning of a Type 1 language. So I think we're privileged to be alive to see the beginning of a type one civilization. However, there are forces of chaos that we have to confront. Uh, one of them is nuclear proliferation. Another is germ warfare. For example, if somebody weaponizes AIDS virus and creates airborne AIDS, so you sneeze and you kill somebody, mm -hmm. uh, that could easily wipe out 99% of the human race. So these are things that we have to confront, you know, the dark side of technology. But I'm pretty confident that we'll make Type 1. I'm pretty optimistic. All right. Uh, where can the listener find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, first they can go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Uh, the book has been on the New York Times bestseller list now for four weeks running. Congratulations. And, you know, uh, when was the last time you saw the word physics? on the top 10 <laughs> books published in the United States. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Kaku, thank you once again for your time today. It's been a real honor and our pleasure. We wish you all the best with your new book and look forward to more exciting work from you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Dr. Kaku, for joining us today and telling us about your new book. We encourage our listeners to go and pick up a hard copy, ebook, or audio book. We know you'll enjoy it. You can find us at www.chuckchat.com along with several other great podcasts or search for Interface to Face on iTunes and have it automatically delivered as new shows come out. Theme music graciously provided by George Wood. You can find him at podsafeaudio.com. Want to get in touch with us? Send your comments to interface to face at chuckchat.com or follow us on Twitter at Interface to Face. We'll be back where we'll interface to face for you.